Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. everyone welcome to group text did anyone else on this call like grow up in the 80s that'd be that'd be me um you're gonna know who i'm talking about very excited today joined by someone who i love and adore although i think i might love and adore his wife more please welcome richard marks hi richard how are you right back at you Thank you. You know, and my wife and my wife adores you too. So it's a, just a love. Fe- it's a group text love fest. That is. Don't, isn't that good when that happens? Yeah, I love that. So you have a new book out. I do, and, and that's very exciting. We're going to talk about the book in a minute. But I was thinking, there are so many things I don't know about you for someone I've known mm-hmm. for so long. Mm-hmm. So let's just start at the beginning. Okay. You come from a musical family, but who was the first person to put an instrument in your hand? Oh, um, well, technically, you can't really put a piano in your hand, but my my parents, particularly my father, who was a classically trained, brilliant jazz pianist who then became a very successful jingle composer and producer, um, you know, there was a sense that I had some musical ability when I was, I mean, two or three years old. So by the time I was around five, my father, I think, was the one who said he needs some training. You know, he needs piano lessons. And so they did what every kid, you know, I went through the same thing that every kid goes through, you know, being forced to take lessons. And I freaking hated it so much. Really? I hated it. Why? I was just, it was boring. The the teacher that he got for me was this old man who was just humorless and, and it was just not fun. And I, I was, I, I, I found the whole thing to be one giant fucking drag. And so I, I, I think I stuck with it for the better part of a year, but I would not practice. And, and I, I, my parents were luckily for me, they were not, that was not the line in the sand they were going to draw. You know, they, they were like, well, if you hate it, then we're not going to make you take piano lessons. And then but, would your mother weep quietly in the corner when you couldn't see her? Disappointing her <laughs> already? No, it, was, it was not. No. I think, and to be honest with you, I think it was my mom who said, look, this is ridiculous. He hates it. You know, that, that we, we shouldn't make him do this. And so, I don't know, maybe two years later, uh, I I had an uncle, my my mother's brother-in-law who used to hang come and visit and he he was just so cool he was like one of the coolest guys i ever met when i was a little boy he looked kind of like elvis and he was kind of a little bit of a he had a southern drawl and he was just he would get in fights and he was kind of a total degenerate in a certain way in certain ways but when you're a little boy he was so and he turned out to be a really wonderful guy but he he was a troubled young man, but I thought he was so cool. And he really took a liking to me and he played a little bit of guitar. And so he, I hung out with him a lot and he, and I liked that he played guitar. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to play guitar instead. And by this time I was singing and I was like, I knew I could sing. Um, but so then I really got into playing guitar and, and he taught me a couple of songs he knew, like, Ray Charles, what I say, and a couple of Elvis songs. And so, so I started to really get into that. And then I started taking guitar lessons from this wonderful woman 
who was a great teacher. And then, long-winded story and long-winded answer, I snuck back down to the family piano and started practicing and trying to teach myself Elton John songs and Billy Joel songs. And, but I didn't want my parents to know that I was playing piano because that would have <laughs> been, you know, confessing that they'd been right all along and I should have stuck with it. And, and to this day, I, <laughs> I, I did that classic thing for years where I would give my parents shit about not making me take piano lessons and make me stick with it because I'm not the pianist that I really wish I was. And I, so I just blame it on them. Because that's, you know, what you do. You can blame the years of therapy yeah. on them. Exactly. <laughs> so it, it all started because you wanted to be like your badass uncle. It kind of did. You know, he he also turned me on to – I was a huge, huge Elvis fan uh, from the time I was old enough to even know who Elvis was. And he was too. My, my I'm, This guy's name is Bob. He's still with us. Bob Coy. And – he loved Elvis too, but he said, well, you know, if you love Elvis, there's this other guy you should listen to because he's really great and he writes all his own songs and his name is Sam Cooke. Wow. And so my Uncle Bob turned me on to Sam Cooke and that was it. That changed my To this day, Sam Cooke's my favorite singer of all time and, and he wrote all those great, great songs, Chain Gang and Cupid and You Send Me and he was a brilliant businessman. I mean, he died so young, but um, he was such an inspiration to me and so, yeah, I have my Uncle Bob to thank for all of that. Which is amazing. But you started singing very young. I, was, I think you were, what, about five when you started singing your dad's jingles for different commercials. Yeah. Um, did you did you find it fun or was it more of an eye roll, like, oh, I have to go to work with Dad? And how would he bribe oh. you? Was it ice cream? Was it the toy store? Like, what did they do to get you in the studio? Oh, they just said, hey, we have a session for you. I loved it. First of all, I loved it so much. But if, and I would have done, I would have been excited about it and loved it no matter what. But I got to get out of school to go do oh, it. Oh, that's huge. There were, it, probably, it wasn't frequent, but I would say, you know, once every three weeks or four weeks, especially for several years, a, a very concentrated period of years, every month or so, I would have to get an excuse to get out of school early. And I'd walk to this train station uh, in a suburb of Chicago where I was going to school and then take the train down to the city. At this point, I was, I started going on my own when I was 10. Like I knew which train to take and get a cab and go over to the studio and meet my parents there and sing Peter Pan peanut butter commercials and Crunchy, crunchy, crunchy. Nessie's crunch is so crunchy. And I mean, that was a blast. I love it. I see it says kennel ration. My dog's better than your dog. My, <laughs> that's me and my mom. And, really? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, no, no, no. I loved, loved, loved it. I loved being around. Even I loved singing, but I loved being in the studio with my parents. I loved that I, I had a sense that it was the family business and that I was you know, following in their footsteps. I loved being around all the musicians. I loved, uh, to this day, there's something about, especially because sometimes my dad would bring in huge members, like a huge groups of, from the Chicago symphony. So right. there'd be 60 orchestral players in the room, you know, and the smell of the cases and the instruments and the, and the chatter and the sounds like I was, I was just completely mesmerized by all of it. I still am. I mean, it's funny that you bring up smell because there's a certain smell 
that sound stages have. Yeah. And I used to could walk into what used to be NBC Burbank. Right. And it had a very specific smell. And right. every time I walk on a set, I I can smell it. Totally know what I mean, right? Totally. Totally. Right, because and, but you but that started because you were uh, I grew your up mom on started it. taking you. Yeah, your mom started taking right. you to, to where she was working from the time you were what, 3? Oh, four? my mother Actually, and it's it's kind of an urban legend, but it's actually true. My mother actually went into labor on stage. <laughs> oh my God. So, and uh, it's true. She went on to labor on stage. She looked at her watch, knew how much longer she had to do, like another twenty to get paid. She stopped, <laughs> caught her breath, went on with the show, went home, had a sandwich, watched a John Wayne movie. And then the next morning, woke up my dad and I was born at like two the next afternoon. Holy crap. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone says, how long have you been part of the act or how long have you been working? I'm like, X amount of years and nine months. Still, I started when I was still technically in the womb. Yeah. 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 I was almost born on stage and you have to give my mother credit for not realizing it then, but giving birth to her own straight man. (laughs) if that's not if that is not planning ahead i don't know wow that's amazing yeah so you know who else was a big jingle writer was barry manilow yes and my mom used to open for barry manilow and i always used to watch his act growing up i mean the funniest thing is i ran into him two three years ago and i literally started to do his act for him (laughs) <laughs> he cracked well, up. He used, to do, he used to do a medley of jingles, right. right? Now, have you thought about putting that in your act? I, I no, but I, <laughs> what I do very frequently is uh, there's a song that I wrote years ago when my dad passed, and I it was it's become sort of a staple of my show, even though it was never a hit single or or released as a commercial single. It was just a, tr- a track on an album, but it. Like so many songs throughout your life, you know, you hear a song that maybe you didn't hear on the radio, but somebody turned you on to it or it was an album cut mm-hmm. or something and it resonates. And it, this song resonates with a lot of people other than me. And so it's become sort of a staple of my show. And it's a pretty heavy song. It's a pretty, you know, emotional song. And so to to lighten the mood after I do it, I talk about my dad and the work that he did. And I sing some of the jingles. So, so when you follow a really emotionally heartfelt four minutes in your show, singing to the audience, ask any mermaid you happen to see what's the best tune. And they all sing chicken. Oh, this, you that can't. was him. Oh yeah. He wrote that. Oh my God. Charlie so, the tuna. You, you know, you gotta, as you know, you gotta have ups and downs in your show and you can't yeah. leave them too, too, too depressed. So no, I don't do my jingles so much, but I I talk about my parents and the work that they did and the audience loves it because I think just like for Barry, I remember, because uh, I worked with him over the years, but I remember in the beginning of his career, that was something that endeared him to, my, to me and my family. And I remember hearing an interview with him early in his career and he said, look, I only have a couple of hit songs and I'm doing a 90 minute show, you got to give the audience stuff that they're familiar with. And that's all, that's the only other stuff I've got is my jingles. I've only got two or three hits. So I, I load up the show with all these, you know, bandaid commercials and it's genius. If, if I think long and hard enough, I could probably do his whole jingle medley still in, in order. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
He's oh, a yeah. great performer. Great performer. I could do his show. I could do Mac Davis's show. I could do a lot of sh- I could repeat oh, my yeah. mother's act. My mom used to joke that um, when she hadn't been on the road for a while, she would bring me in while she was taking her bath and sit me on the edge of the tub and say, tell me my show. And I could do oh. the whole thing. Do you, um, remember, do you remember how Mac Davis used to do he, – he had a great variety show. Yeah. And, and one of his shtick was – he would have the audience yell out a song title and he would write a song on the spot to what they had yelled out. And I, as a kid, along with millions of adults, believed that that was all spontaneous and that that was not set up and there was no planting. And I got to know him a little bit uh, shortly before he passed away. I actually did a podcast with him and he was such a lovely guy. So lovely. And when I told him that, I said, and I really believed that when Fred from New Jersey yelled out, Stop, you know, yeah. my car, my car won't start. And you wrote a song on the spot that you were doing it on the spot. And Mac just leaned into me and he said, oh, bless you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you. And I'm going all out of order here. What's interesting growing up around these people and like growing up around, especially my mom and Mac worked together forever. Yeah. He could only write when he was unhappy. Hmm. Do you have that where you write your best in different emotional spaces in your life? That's a good question. And I, it's a topic that I've discussed uh, with many people over the years. I did buy into that for a long time. Not that I couldn't write unless I was unhappy because I could always write. Right. Well, that's like Mac, his biggest hits came. Yeah. It is some of his lowest points. That's absolutely true of my career and my, my song catalog, that the songs that were a, some of the most successful were, in my opinion, the best, were written, no matter what the, the tone or the subject matter of the song, they were written in really dark times for me. And I have, um, I have had a lot of experience with depression and, and, uh, and darkness. And, and, you know, it's tricky when, you, when from the outside, it looks like you're just blissfully happy and uh and then you got to sort of keep up appearances and all that um i can tell you that in the last eight years which have been the happiest of my life i can still write song i i'm very prolific but i can still write songs i just wrote one a week ago for this new project that if you didn't know me you would go oh man that guy's in trouble that guy's dark i'm so happy so i i've figured out that no matter what your state of mind is, let's, let's say you're going through a really great time, a really up period of time. Creatively, I can tap into that melancholy or that sadness or that depression or whatever immediately. I'll never not immediately know what that, it's like we were talking about the smells of yeah. things that spark, you know, it's very easy for me to tap into that if it's, if it's uh, appropriate. What's hard is to write happy songs that don't make you want to vomit. <laughs> you know, I fucking oh, yeah. hate happy songs. I hate writing them. I hate listening to them. I, I find that there's no poetry in them usually. There's no gravitas. If there's a song, you know, one of my one of the stupid joke I make whenever I'm in a restaurant or in a CVS or something, and I hear Pharrell's "Happy." Uh huh. I tell people, which is bullshit, but I tell people, 
You know, the original working title for this song was Cause I'm Miserable. <laughs> and he just changed it. Yeah. You're so not uh, right. Do you ever get stuck and turn to Daisy and go, I need a favor? Yell at me today because I got to go <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it's not required. I, I just, I can pull from my lifetime of being in those places. And there's an endless well of poetry in those dark periods. It's not. It's not limited to just the times that I was going through them, and it's actually preferable because I, I feel like I, I feel like I'm still really, um, like I say, prolific and eager to write more songs. But I'm doing it sort of. It's almost compartmentalized. It's like I can be in that place and write that song, and then immediately turn and go. So martinis tonight or tequila or where do you want to go have dinner? Like, because I'm really, really happy. So just to get back to how you got to where you were at 17, how did a tape of yours get to Lionel Richie? I, I, my, one of my best friends at the time was a year older than me. So he had started, I was just starting my senior year of high school. He was starting his freshman year at uh, college and I had written four or five songs and be, thanks to my father having a recording studio, they were pretty good sounding demos. Um, I, I hired some of the players that played on the jingles. I had to pay for it myself. My dad would not let me, he even charged me for the studio time. <laughs> it was like, he was like, no, you're going to, you know, I wasn't some little kid. I was 17 and but I had, still. Made a, I'd made a little bit of money from jingles and he was like, no, this is, if you want to be a pro, you got to act like I mean, a pro. Gave, I think he gave me a discount rate actually, but, um, and so this tape, this cassette tape, went with my friend to college and he was, he would play it in the apartment where he was staying. And he had a couple of roommates and it would, it just became part of their soundtrack, like REO Speedwagon or Sticks right. or Queen. And then would, they would play, you know, Hey, this is my friends. And people go, who is that? Because my friend from Chicago. Well, one of those roommates knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew Lionel Richie and Lionel was just about to start his solo career away from the Commodores and they said yeah we're going to try to get this tape to Lionel Richie and you're like yeah right well I said yeah right but Melissa and this is something I write about in this book I knew that it was going to happen I knew that Lionel Richie was going to hear my tape and contact me I knew I was so matter of fact about it and not in this sort of like arrogant way, but in a matter of fact, what, like I believed it. Like I thought, oh yeah, yeah, no, I think that's going to happen. And six or seven weeks later, the phone rings in my parents' house. Richard there? Hold on. Hello? Hey, Richard, is Lionel Richie. Did you drop and the I phone at that point? Almost. I was elated. But like I say, I, it wasn't the shock that it could have been because I believed that that was what was going to happen. And I, I, I didn't realize any of this intellectually until the last few years that I've had this <clears throat> ability to think correctly. And well, by that, I mean, the, power, the power of positive thinking in a way. Yes, to choose my thoughts wisely. Because so many people I know who say things like, or really think things like, well, that's never going to happen for me, or that's, he's never going to call me, or that's it does and usually it doesn't happen because that's what you're putting out into the universe i think even at 17 i had i kind of had a feeling that things great things were going to happen for me 
But that doesn't minimize at all the graciousness of Lionel Richie calling this kid who he didn't know just to cheer him on. And he talked to me for a half an hour. He was so complimentary and so nice and, and said, you know, your parents are going to probably kill me, but, but you know, you've got the goods, man. You should, I know you're probably going to go to college, but you might want to come out to LA and try it out here first, you know, cause you, you're really talented. And my parents were totally on board with that. You know, really? like, who went with you? Or did they just pop you? Oh, your dad went with you. So they didn't just like put you on a plane and wave. No, as soon as I graduated from high school, I think I stayed home for another couple of months and kind of got some stuff together. And then he flew me out to L.A., helped me find an apartment in Encino, which is where all I could afford really at the time. Um, And it was a beautiful week with my dad. And during that week, Lionel Richie was starting his solo, his first solo album, and he invited me and my dad to come by the studio just to say hello. In fact, Lionel had even said to me, I don't have work for you, but, mm-hmm. you know, you should get out here and get, you know, and meet people and stuff. So my dad and I go by the studio to meet him. And we're sitting in this, and he's working on a song called You Are. You are the sun. You are huge head, right? Right. And they were doing background vocals that day when we happened to the day we came there happened to be background vocal day. And apparently they'd been working on that song for hours or maybe even more than a day. And they couldn't find the sound or the blend vocally that Lionel was after. And I could see he was getting a little frustrated. Now I was just sitting with my dad in the control room on a couch and all of a sudden Lionel looks through the glass and points to me and he goes, come here. And I did that thing where you look behind you. Like he can't be talking to me. Right. Right. And I get up and I go out and he says, hey, uh, you've been listening. You, you know what part I'm singing? And I went, I think so. Yeah. He goes, OK, you sing my part. And then he pointed to the other singers and said, you switch this and switch this. And he went into the control room and they ran the tape and I sang with these other two singers. And he threw his hands up and went, that's the sound. <laughs> and I had a job. I said that and that was that. That was that. And then he said, he. He hired, he, he let me come and sing on a bunch of songs on that first album and the second. I sang on All Night Long and I sang on a bunch of his songs. But the greatest gift Lionel gave me was he said, you know, I don't always, I'm not going to always have work for you in the studio because I'm not always doing background vocals and stuff. But if you're, if I'm in this room, meaning the studio, right. you're welcome to be in this room with me. And basically he just said, you can hang here as much as you want whenever I'm here. And I didn't miss a day. I went there every day. And I just watched him make that record and watched him the way he worked with musicians and engineers and met some musicians who are my friends to this day and learned. I I watched him make a multi-platinum massive hit album. It's like a master class. Yeah, that's what I call it. Talk about gracious. Talk about kindness. He's and to this day, uh, you know, we're we're friends and we are in touch with each other. And I just one of the greatest things about writing my book and and particularly promoting it has been talking about Lionel Richie and telling people like he's exactly who you think he is. He's the kindest, warmest, most one. He's an angel in my life. You ended up singing background vocals for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, major people I have here. Uh Whitney Houston, Madonna, you wrote with uh, Kenny Rogers, Chicago. Yeah. What did you learn as a performer watching these people who were superstars? 
Oh, that's a good question. I've never been asked that question, Melissa. Well, thank God I came up with something original, especially with you on a book, <laughs> especially being on a book tour. Uh, that's, I don't know if I can answer that as a performer. You know, one, one of the things I, I learned fast was the way these major super, superstars were different, you know, off stage, off camera, and how they could, how they just lit up in a certain way. So Lionel was a good example. If, you know, I'll, I'll stick with Lionel because he's a great example. One of the things I really noticed about him is he's not much different at all when he's on stage in front of 20,000 people or on television hosting the American Music Awards like he used to do. It's just a slight exaggeration. It's just a slightly bigger, more animated version of himself. It's not night and day. And I really admired that and I really liked that because I thought, you know, I don't want to try to contort myself into being something I'm not. And then it was like, oh, I don't, I don't have to. I can just sort of be me, but maybe just cranked up a, a notch. I always think it's about energy. Energy, 100%. You know, my mom would get on the stage and blast the back of the room out. Yeah. With energy. And, and, and I find that still, with all great performers, you have to be having the best time or yeah. your audience is not having the best time. And there's days you got to fake it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, your mom, you know, from what I know about her, was sort of like this ultimate pro. Like, like I, my guess is that your mother was... She never flaked. She never mm -hmm. let somebody down. She never didn't show up. She didn't. She was never temperamental when it came to like doing her job. Nope. And that she, that she almost cherished that reputation for being a pro. Oh yeah. And that's something that has kind of become rarer and rarer as time has gone on. It is. Was your first big hit as a singer or a songwriter or a singer songwriter? My first big hit was as a writer. And what was that? Crazy by Kenny Rogers. So do you the still first... get residuals? Yes. <laughs> do you own still on the publishing? Oh, yes. <laughs> so you oh, were yeah. smart too. Yes. Uh, Crazy was, uh, <clears throat> you know, I was singing background vocals for him. Lionel Richie recommended me to Kenny. And they, they'd worked together a lot and were right. great friends. And so I got booked for two days on a Kenny Rogers album. I was 19. I did the first session. He was there. He was part of producing the album and he was very nice, but very business. And I sang on, I think, two tracks that day and he liked what I did. And then I was coming back to the next day to do two more songs. And I overheard him that first day mention to his producer that, that he still needed a song for the album. And he even mentioned the, the kind of song. He wanted a ballad and he wanted it to say this. And he said, we got to find this song that blah, 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 blah. And I went home that night to my apartment in Encino and I wrote a song called Crazy. Trying to write what he was describing. Okay, so I wrote the song that I thought was pretty good. I came back the next day and I did what a background singer should never do. Which is approach the artist and say, hey, I'm a songwriter too, and I have a song for you. That's a really good way to get your ass fired. It's yeah. so just, it's an unspoken, you don't, you don't do that. It's a faux pas. No, it's the, it's, the, it's the rules. It's the rules. I, I don't know why at 19 I risked, because 
it could have blown up in my face and been like, don't hire that guy because he's going to push his songs on you. But again, I just, I thought I have to go for it. And I, and I approached him, I was shaking from head to toe and, and I told him, I said, look, I, I'm, I know that this isn't cool, but I overheard you yesterday and I, I, I'm a songwriter too. And, and again, I got met with graciousness and he, he, he kind of gruffly went, oh, well, let me hear it. <laughs> and I didn't even have a demo. To, I didn't have a studio or anything in my house. I just, so I sat at the piano and played it for him. And he <laughs> smiled and said, that's really, really nice. That's really good. And then he changed like one word and took 50% of the song as my songwriter. <laughs> Something we joked about literally to the end of his life. We were friends to the end of Kenny's life. You know, we just lost him like a year and a half ago. Uh, and the song went to number one on the country chart. Where and were you I, the first time you heard it on the radio? I was in my car. I was, you know, and I was looking for it. I was... I didn't at that time listen to much country music. I ended up becoming a big part of like, like really getting into country and, and working with great country artists over the years. But at that time, I wasn't really listening to country music, but I was listening to that whatever L.A. local country station relentlessly trying to hear it. And then it just blew up. And then I ended up writing two more songs on that same album. And so that and the album went double platinum. So Which now, two? One was a song called What About Me? That was the name of the album. And it was a trio between Kenny Rogers, Kim Carnes, and James Ingram. Wow. And it was this sort of love triangle song. And I wrote it with Kenny. And Kenny, instead of just changing a word, Kenny really did co-write that song. And David Foster and I wrote the music together. And Kenny and I wrote the lyrics together. And uh, that song went to number one on the adult contemporary chart and was a top 20 pop hit. And then another song that was not, not released is a single called Somebody Took My Love. So I... So now I had three, I was 19, I had three songs on the new Kenny Rogers album, and my songwriting career was on, off to the races. What was the first thing you bought when you started making money? Because you're 19, Yeah. and all these sort of magical things keep happening, so obviously some money started coming in. What was the first big splurge? I waited about a year, because I was, you know, I, I was very conservative, you know, fiscally conservative, and... I, I I wasn't I wasn't really into any kind of bling or fancy stuff. Like I was really just all about the work. Um, the first big purchase I made actually was an eight-track uh, home recording tape machine. So I, I, the first big money I spent was on my career was was investing in my career. But the fun thing a year later, I got rid of my six-year-old Datsun 280ZX. And I bought a silver Mercedes convertible. Wow. You had arrived. Yeah. Well, you know, I was like, I was only 20, but I remember thinking I could buy, I could buy a Porsche or I could buy this sports car or whatever. There was just something so elegant about that. You remember the old Mercedes 500, this was a 500 SL, but it was the 450 SL body. And I always looked at that as like, to me, that was a symbol of success because sports cars can kind of come and go. And there was something about that Mercedes and I always coveted it. And I, and that's what I bought. I bought when I got my first big contract, I bought a Porsche, a 911. Yeah. 
and it was manual. And I really did not know how to drive manual. <laughs> and the first day I drove it, I had to make a U-turn. Oh, my God. And I could not get it in reverse. And it took me like 30 minutes to figure out. But I wanted that car so badly. You're lucky, that you, was, weren't, you're lucky you weren't at the top of La Cienega and Sunset, like by the on way, the hill. That shit still scares me. Yeah. <laughs> it, like I, that took a lot. Like I went way around for many, many, many years. But there's something about something like that symbolizing your own success to you. And people are like, "Oh, you had whatever you want." Like for me, yeah, that symbolized my six, my beginning of my success. Yeah, yeah. Do you still have that eight track recorder? No, it's long gone. Don't you wish you still had it in a weird way? Um. I wonder what it would be worth on eBay now. Probably. Uh, well, if you signed it, probably a lot. <laughs> <laughs> or if I put, if I left one of the tapes of the early demos on it, you know, maybe. Um, yeah, I want to, you know, we can go on and on about the book, but you do tell a story about Barbara Streisand that I know everybody wants to hear yeah. and working with her. Because talk about a perfectionist and someone who knows her shit and knows what works for her. Yeah. So you brought Right Here Waiting, which was an enormous hit for you. Yeah. To her, and her answer was, I don't wait for anybody. I'm not going to be right here waiting for anybody. <laughs> How old were you? I was 24. Did you just go like, okay. No, it was really great. You know, I'd already, I'd had, uh, my first album was out, so I, I was doing really well. I was touring. I'd had like four huge top five singles. Oh, yeah, it took and, off like a rocket ship. Yeah, the first album just blew up. And I was just like all cylinders. And I get this call from, uh, my manager got a call from her manager, a guy named Marty Ehrlichman. Marty Ehrlichman. Yeah. And, um, you think Richard could come and have a meeting with Barbara? <laughs> and, uh, I was so flattered. I had actually met her really, really briefly about two years before this is before I had a record deal. I was singing on, I think it was another Kenny Rogers album or something, but I was in this studio that used to be in Hollywood that Kenny Rogers owned, but it was a huge studio where everybody worked called Lion Share. It's long gone, mm -hmm. but everybody worked there. Rod Stewart and David Lee Roth and Diana Ross, you name it. Everybody was working there. So I'm, so I'm sitting in this room about to sing some background vocals and Barbara Streisand herself walks into the room, into the studio and looks around and says, is there a Richard here? <laughs> and I, and I'm like, Oh my God, what the fuck is happening right now? Like, I said, yeah, I'm Richard. And she said, hi, um, they say you can sound like people. Can you sing like people? And I went, what people? She was like, you know, like other people, like other singers. Can you do it like you can do impressions and stuff? And I said, I, I guess so. She goes, can you sound like Barry Gibb? <laughs> and I went, I, I don't, I, I don't. And I'm like stuttering. So she takes my hand, walks me down the hall to the studio where she's mixing this live album. And on the walk, she says, so here's the thing. I just, I'm mixing my live album and Barry came and sang Guilty with me, but he forgot to sing a line. Could you sound like him? <laughs> she shoves me behind the microphone. They play the track, they get to the spot. And of course I knew the song, the song was a huge hit. And I go up to it and I put my headphones on and I go, it ought to be illegal. And she threw her hands up. She goes, that's perfect. Thank you so much. <laughs> that's what's on the album. Uh, my, my impression of Barry Gibb as Barry Gibb. Um, okay. So cut to two years later or so I go to this other studio to meet with her and she's just the most beautiful, 
talk about smells. She's the best smelling person I've ever met. <laughs> um, and the most beautiful hands and just. She's oh, her hands awesome. are amazing. She's just got such sex appeal and just. She's a star. You walk elegant. in and she's such a star. A superstar. And she was so gracious and she was very complimentary. She said, I really like your album and I really like your songwriting. And, and I was wondering, you know, if you could write a song for me. So I had just written Right Here Waiting, which I had no intention of recording because it was, A, I was making a real rock album and it didn't fit that album, I didn't think. It was a very personal lyric between me and my then girlfriend uh, who became my first wife. It, it was like, it just felt like, oh, well, I'll give her that song. I'll see if she <laughs> wants to do Right Here Waiting because I'm not going to use it. Right. And I sent over the demo tape, the little demo cassette of it. And she actually left that on my voicemail. And I still have that voicemail where she said, you know, thank you so much for sending the song. It's, you know, the, the melody is really interesting, beautiful. But you're going to have to rewrite the lyrics because I'm not going to be right here waiting for anybody. Which is so <laughs> hilarious, but also such a great, like you alluded to. I talk about a person who knows who she is and what she's willing to say and what she's not willing to do or say. And I just found, instead of feeling rejected, I was so inspired by it. So cut to, we ended up working together over the years. Uh, I wrote and produced a couple of things for her over the years. But more importantly, especially I'd say in the last 10 years, we started hanging out together a lot socially and I've become really close to her and Jim and and now the four of us you know we spent Valentine's Day together a couple of years ago and and I every once in a while I just put my arms around her and hug her and I go thanks again for rejecting that song <laughs> because <clears throat> had she recorded it and who knows if it would have been I'm sure it would have been a hit for her but she didn't need my help having hits um but what she did accidentally was trigger me recording it and then me having the biggest hit of my life. You know, and people need to get the book because we could go on and on. I wanted, I mean, you have such amazing stories from the road and people you worked with, but I want to talk about something different in your life who, someone I adore, Daisy. Yeah. Your wife. Yeah. You met in 2013. Yeah. How did you guys meet? We, we met on Twitter. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. We met through Twitter. We we both, without knowing it, we both followed and still follow Martha Quinn, one of the original one MTV. Of the, yes. Sweetheart. Total sweetheart. And Martha and I were having this funny banter. I don't remember what it was about, but she tweeted something and I chimed in. And then all of a sudden, Daisy sees it and quote tweets us or, or you know, comments oh my God, you two are giving me the sweetest 90s flashback or something like that. And I saw it and I went, oh my God, Daisy Fuentes. Because I'd always had a crush on Daisy Fuentes, like everybody else. I was going to say you and 90% of the male population. Everyone. But but I, you know, back in the day, and and I can't, we still can't believe that we never met through all those years because I... I think every other MTV VJ interviewed me at one time or another, except her. By the way, all we there's a great list of MTV alum, including me. Yes, exactly. And exactly. Polly Shore like, and John Stewart, John who I Stewart. worked with. I mean, the list is pretty. Yes. Crazy. Pretty amazing. Um, there was always something about Daisy 
separate from her absolute hotness and gorgeousness, which was obvious, every time I would see her, I would stop and watch her, whether she was doing the Top 20 Countdown or she was doing Beach MTV or whatever she was doing, because there was always something about her that made me think that I would like her. It's a, little, I, that, it's a little stalkery, you realize. A little stalkery. <laughs> Maybe Wait. that's a story you shouldn't tell. I would always watch her. <laughs> like, I always watch her. And, yeah, and it would a little be creepy. Even, it would be even <laughs> creepier if I had said, but there was always something that made me think she would like me. That would be even worse. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. There was always yeah. something about her that made me think, I bet she's a great hang. I bet on top of being gorgeous, she's just funny and she's cool. And I, I just liked her. Um, and I, re- <clears throat> I remember thinking, I would, I hope I run into her, not in any kind of way. Stalkery. Like, I, was, I, was, <laughs> I was happily married. I was like, you know, I had family. It wasn't that at all. It was just that there was always something appealing about her to me beyond her appearance. So it just happened that we met as I was coming out of my marriage and I was single for the first time in my entire adult life. Yeah. And so my plan was to be single, like for a long time. Well, that went to hell in a handbag. Thank God. Um, <laughs> I, the timing was like impeccable. She probably saved me from all kinds of ridiculous debauchery. Um, but I, I, we met on through that, through Twitter. We started following each other. And then I did a show at the Grammy Museum, um, maybe a while after we had met on Twitter and now I was separated. And I remember inviting her to this show. I invited a hand, like a bunch of people from LA. I was still living in Chicago at the time. And I, I was doing the show at the Grammy Museum. I was inviting some people I knew in LA and it occurred to me to invite her, not in a datey date kind of way at all. It was sort of, cause I was, you know, to be honest with you, I was coming out of a 25 year marriage not like we, I was really in a bad place. I was really having a rough time. Uh, but I wanted to meet her and, and I, I conversed with her on Twitter a couple of times. And she, this was so cool. I, I didn't even have her number. I just DM'd her. I slid into her DM. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I DM'd her and I said, hey, I'm going to be playing a show in LA in a month or two weeks or whatever. And I would love you to come as my guest at the Grammy Museum. She didn't respond for a day or so. And I thought, oh, okay, whatever. What she had done is called her publicist and said, hey, Richard Marks invited me to a show at the Grammy Museum. And I'd really like to get tickets rather than him giving me tickets. Classy thing to do, right? Very. I wouldn't have done that. I'm too, I would have been like, can I bring six (laughs) friends for free? (laughs) So her publicist says, I represent him. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. She and Daisy goes, what the fuck? How, why would you not tell me you represent Richard? Mark? She goes, I don't tell anybody who I represent. It's like confidential. It's like, I yeah. don't just or blab it. She goes, but yeah, he's my client. So the next day I get a DM from Daisy back saying, I already have tickets. I'll see you there. And I was like, wow, that's super cool. And we met, for, Melissa, this is so great. Uh, I did the show. Afterwards, people are coming into the dressing room. She walked through the door. I was across the room, but I saw saw her come into the door. And as corny as this sounds, it wasn't love at first sight. 
but something electric went through my body. Often that's called and lust. Was, <laughs> there was definitely that. But there was a thing that happened to me that I re- all I remember consciously thinking when I laid eyes on her walk in that room was my life's different now. Like everything's wow. different. Everything felt different. She came over, she gave me a hug. And we have a photograph because there was a Getty photographer in the room. There's a picture of the minute we met, which That's is pretty amazing. So we chatted for a minute and she gave me her number and said, you know, we should go have tequila sometime. She, she was, she didn't know. Uh, she thought I was still married and like there was no, it wasn't that kind of, you know, it was flirty, but it was, it was innocent. Right. Um, and so I came back to LA a couple months later and I asked her out to dinner and it was then that she was like, so are you married? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, well, it's no, not, not really anymore. And, but she goes, but nobody knows that. I said, no, but so it really kind of started from there. And then I just courted her. I, I, I just pursued her. Like relentlessly. what was the most, what was the most romantic thing you did? Um, I'm only pausing because, to be honest with you, there's like, it's a long list. Oh. You'd have to ask her. I'll have to ask her sometime. I really, I really like that. I really like uh, romance and I really like um, courting. Because I use the word courting. Yeah. I'm old fashioned that way in that. And she's such a lady. She's such an elegant woman. And I, and she was not used to that really. No. Um, And so especially at that time of her life and her, cause she was single and having fun and dating. And, but she she had set up a life for herself where she didn't need anybody to help her be happy. Right. You know, she was really in a beautiful place all on her own. As she used to say, look, I'm open. The door is open, but if things go South, just don't block the doorway so I can get out. <laughs> you know? Um, and so we just kind of, we had some little ups and downs and, I was still going through a lot of, you know, turmoil and stuff. And she was a little suspicious of, you know, relationships. And it took a little, it took a minute, but then, um, you know, we're just blissfully happy. What did you want to put in the book that your editors made you take out? Oh, it was the opposite. It was stuff that they wanted me to put in that I refused to put in. Really? Yeah. I mean, I have to say, you know, I, I did this book with Simon and Schuster and my editor, a guy named Sean Manning, really great guy, young editor, really helpful. I wrote everything myself. I didn't have anybody help me. There was an, an initial push for me to be more, um, talk about other relationships, talk about women I've been with, talk about, talk more deeply about my marriage and divorce um, push me a little bit on some topics that could have been me throwing more people under the bus. <clears throat> Ultimately, the, the, the easiest one was what I just said, look, you know, when I read someone's book, if they're talking about people they've slept with or affairs they've had or whatever, um, I'm not like, Oh my God, I can't wait to turn the page. I'm like, wow, that's gross. Oh, we are so the opposite. Yeah, I, I'm sure, but I, I don't. I, I don't. I don't like. I, I don't like. I don't like. It. And, and especially, and I, you know, forgive me if this is sort of like it's almost like reverse misogyny. I find it particularly uh, 
gross when men do that. I think it's an in, inelegant, classless thing to do. And so that's just that not- makes it, That makes a page turner. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but your Look, book is did, doing great. Well, kicked ass and, and I didn't have to throw anybody under the bus or talk about women I'd slept with. And I got, and I, you know, as I, I came up with the perfect phrase for it, I said, I got to write a book in a way that never violated my integrity of privacy. You can so never be a relative of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this whole integrity thing. What the fuck it, is that it, shit? It's like, really? I, this is all very <laughs> confusing and I'm not sure I want to hang out with you anymore. Uh, last By the question. way, and I say this as a huge compliment to both of you, but do you know who you remind me of? Oh God, who? My friend, Heather Dubrow. I love Heather. I would imagine you guys are, like would be. I have, she's she's one of my favorites. Your energy and like I think Heather said almost the exact same thing. So, like she she said I really really because we're great friends with her and Terry, <clears throat> and she said you know I really love and respect that you didn't name names and you didn't talk about this stuff, but you better fucking tell me because I need to hear it all. <laughs> exactly. No, I get that completely. Um, last question, because the list of everybody that you have worked with is mind boggling. Who haven't you worked with that you would still love to? Rod Stewart. Really? I would have assumed you would have worked with Rod. Well, I mean, I, I did a show with him a couple of years ago in Atlanta and we've met several times and, um, uh, but we've, I've never written a song with him. I've never produced him. I've never worked with him in the studio. And I've never sung with him. And again, it's like one of those things where he doesn't need my help. He's done fine. Um, but I've always been such a fan of his. He's always been really gracious to me and nice to me. <clears throat> he's someone, he's always been on my list and I never quite got that to check off my list. Um, but who you know, of the younger? Who of the younger people? I was just going to say the other the other the other people on the list are all younger people, like Halsey and Tovlo and um, you know Bruno Mars. And I, but again, all these people who I have great admiration for, but who do not need my help in any way, shape, or form. They're doing just fine. Well, I think all of them could probably use a good Richard Marx song. Wow, that's very sweet of you. Richard, as always, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. 